All right. Well, hi, Pastor Thomas. Nice to meet you. Nice I met you this morning, which is great. Thank you. Um, well, before we start, I might just quickly ask him a few questions. Sure. Um, so, why don't you let us know what your full name is and where you're from? My country origin is Singapore. My full name is Thomas Yuk Che Chin. I'm going to be really sorry because if I try to repeat that, it's going to okay. be really badly pronounced. So okay. I might not repeat it, but thank you for sharing that. Okay. You can call me Thomas. Oh, to I call Tom. it Thomas. Tom? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, not Tommy, right? We Tommy do have a Tommy, fine. but Tom's He's good. Right. Okay, I've okay, been okay, okay. Many <laughs> all right. Well, um, so how long have you been in Australia? Have you are you born and raised here, or were you? Okay. May 11 this year, it will be 20 years. Wow, 20. Yes, it was. Who's here over 20? Yes. That's everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All yeah. right. Yep. And um, quickly, so where, where were you originally from? Singapore. Singapore. Awesome. Yes. yes. What's your favorite Singapore dish? Uh, tofu. Tofu. All <laughs> right, I'm a tofu Interesting, man. interesting. All right, well, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Okay. So why don't we, um, why don't I get, hey, Jono, can you pray for Pastor Thomas, please? And we will um, let take you over and share the word. Okay, thanks yeah, again, brother. My, uh, yeah, my privilege. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for Pastor Thomas and bringing him to us and the blessing that it is to meet him and um, yeah, we just caught up briefly before the service, and Father, I'm just so eager to hear uh, the word that you've laid upon his heart, and Father, I pray that uh, you would help him to uh, speak uh, from you, and that God, that you would give him uh, the wisdom and the words to say to us. And Father, I pray for us as well as your audience, as your people, uh, that God, you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are open to receive what you have for us this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll bless uh, the preaching of your word, and that you'll be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, everybody. If you have your Bible either on your mobile phone or on your hand, you are free to open to Nehemiah chapter 3. We will not take the time to read through the whole passage because once you look at it, you will understand why. <laughs> Let's pause and go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for the holy privilege of worship. We thank you indeed it will be our eternal preoccupation. Not simply for us gathered here on Sundays, where we will not only worship, but we serve you as our King of kings and our Lord of lords. And even now we ask that with the opening of your word, your Holy Spirit will bring home the message for each one of us. We pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was the pastor of Northland Chinese Chapel in Kansas City in the States, I led the church in a telemarketing exercise. So one Sunday afternoon, we divided ourselves into groups according to alphabetical order. Going through the telephone directories, we were looking for Chinese names. We were trying to reach the Chinese community in the greater Kansas City area. We were interested in telling them about our Chinese language school and, of course, about our church. That experience comes to my mind when I read the third chapter of Nehemiah's autobiography. If you scan the passage, 
you will think that you are looking at a directory of largely forgotten names and forgotten places. And when you try to pronounce the names of the people and the places, you will experience tongue twisting. In fact, you will also understand why no one has ever conducted a Bible quiz on Nehemiah chapter 3. And if you're reading that chapter for the very first time, you may conclude that it is one of the least interesting and one of the least relevant chapters in the Bible. And if you're given a choice, you'd rather skip it and go on straight to chapter 4. If you do that, I submit to you, you will miss out the secrets of successful church building. And I'm sure you do not want that to happen to not only this church, but to any church of Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a magnifying glass, as it were, and examine the minute details of the chapter. At the end of our time together, you will see an amazing portrait of unity, harmony, and efficiency. You will see a picture of order and organization. You will see all the hallmarks of motivation and mobilization. So looking at the chapter closely, I discovered there are three secrets of successful church building. Secret number one, successful church building requires everybody. Can you say that after me? Everybody. All right. If you think that successful church building depends solely and chiefly on the efforts of the pastor and the church leaders, I submit to you, you are listening to the devil's lie. That is the most fatal deception. There is no greater danger than that. When you examine the way the Jews rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, you will see one thing for sure. Everybody gets involved. Except for a very small minority, everybody rolls out the sleeve. Everybody gets to work. Everybody gets to do something. Now let's turn to the chapter and see who are the people we are talking about. First, they are the old-timers. They are the people who have been around for a very long time, often from day one. In a sense, they've seen it all. They know what works and what doesn't work in the church. So they tend to be realistic rather than idealistic. So old-timers may become skeptical or even cynical. When I was a young pastor in my former church back in Singapore, one member had this to say about the old-timers. He said, you cannot ban an old tweet. You know why? Because it will break. But thankfully, the old-timers in the Himalayas, they are not the old tweets. Instead, they are the supportive people. They are the ones who get involved in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. In verse 4, Nehemiah, the leader of the entire building force, says, Verse 4, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired the next section. He is mentioned again in verse 21. This Merimoth is one of the old timers who go the second mile. 
Then there is Nehemiah, verse 16. Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of the half district of Benzer. He is not the same Nehemiah as Nehemiah, the son of Hekeli, verse 1, the cupbearer, the author of the book of Nehemiah. This second Nehemiah, he too is an old-timer. Nearly a century before, he is one of the first Jews to return to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Merimoth and Nehemiah have witnessed the failures of past rebuilding attempts. As we say, once beaten, twice shy. Twice beaten, never try. And we in Singapore have one more to say. Thrice beaten, surely die. <laughs> but you know what? These old timers, Merimoth and Nehemiah, are not about to give up hope. Under the young Nehemiah, God's anointed, appointed leader, they get involved in the rebuilding task. And I pray with all my heart, may God increase this tribe of old-timers in and beyond the four walls of this church. Other than the old-timers, they are the people from out of town, such as the men of Jericho in verse 2, the men of Tekoa in verse 5, men from Gibeon and Mishpah verse 7, and the residents of Zanoa, verse 13. All these people live outside Jerusalem. To rebuild the city walls, they had to commute to and fro from Jerusalem. That's not very convenient, isn't it? But guess what? They do not take that as an excuse. Next, they are the people who live in Jerusalem. The majority of the builders are the residents of Jerusalem. If I list each of their names, it will take too much time. Altogether, Nehemiah mentioned no less than 75 individuals by name. If you're thinking of choosing a name for the newborn, you run of places to turn to, maybe this is one chapter you can look at. No less than 75 of them. Nehemiah also mentioned at least 15 groups of people. Of all the groups, I will only highlight the priests, the goldsmith, the perfume makers, and the merchant. And so in verse 1 we read, Elias said the high priest and his priest went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. This is very significant. And if you ask me why, I'll tell you the answer. Here, the high priest and his company of priests take the decisive lead. They could have asked for excuse and attend only to the duties of the temple, and rightly so. But they do not do that. By their example, they inspire others to serve beyond their special sacred calling. So in either side of the high priest's house, the Levites and the priests work on large sections of the wall. You find this in verse 17, verses 20 to 22. And so following that good example, the temple servants, the lowest in the priestly hierarchy, they also make repairs. Verse 26. Then they are the goldsmith, 
perfume makers and merchants. They are mentioned in verses 8, 31, and 32. Like the priests, they take on added responsibility upon themselves. Like many of us, they already had their normal jobs to keep them busy. But for the sake of rebuilding the world, they go the second mile. There's something else I want you to see in verses 1 and 32. The first and the last verse of the chapter. Read the verses and tell me who are the people working side by side at the ship gate. Verse 1, who do we have? The high priest and his fellow priest. Verse 32, who are the people there? The goldsmith and the merchants. Can you see what is happening here? If you don't, I give you my answer again. In these two verses, we see the blending of the so-called religious and non-religious classes of God's people working together for God. It is a perfect illustration of the New Testament doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. In God's eyes, there is no such distinction between the clergy, people like me or Pastor Joe, and the laity, people like you guys. In fact, some people say, what do you mean by laity? Are they the people who just lay around in church? Hence, they are known as the laity. No, there is no such difference in the Bible. God calls all His people to be His ministers. Without exception, all believers, all followers, all disciples, all members of this church are both priests of God and priests for God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, God declares, You are the chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who call you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This reminds me of a signboard I saw outside a church in South Carolina in the States. It says very clearly and simply, line number one, ministers, colon, all the members. Line number two, equipper, colon, Reverend John Smith. This is exactly what the church should be. This is what the church should do. Successful church building requires everybody. You hear that? Secret number two. Successful church building requires everybody working in the right place. There's a story of four persons named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. Please listen carefully. There was an important job to do and everybody was asked to do it. Everybody was sure somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody would do it, but nobody realized everybody would not do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Now, in the end, who gets the important job? Done. Answer? Nobody. What is the moral of the story? 
answer, everybody responsibility becomes nobody responsibility. The experience of people in the corporate world as well as in the churches have proven this to be true time and time again. If we leave an important job for everybody to do it, in the end, nobody does it. This is what I say, successful church building requires everybody working in the right place. If you analyze the structure of the third chapter, you will realize the paragraph centered around the gates. There are a total of 10 gates and 10 sections of all in the city of Jerusalem then. The chapter begins and ends with the sheep gate, the northeast corner of the city wall. To rebuild the walls effectively and efficiently, Nehemiah divides all the people into altogether 42 work teams. Can you see what is happening? Again, if you don't, I give you the answer. In rebuilding the walls, everybody must not only be involved, but everybody must be involved in the right place. God's work does not only require high spirituality, it also requires great efficiency. This is where leadership, management, and administration gifting comes in. To get everybody in the right place, Nehemiah assigned those from outside Jerusalem to work on sections of the wall where there are few homes. The commuters take on the tasks which the residents find inconvenient. Then those who live in Jerusalem are assigned to work on sections of the wall near their homes. Now this explains why from verse 20 onwards, the homes of the people become the main point of reference. And so I run to very quickly. In verse 20, you read, From the anger to the entrance of the house of the high priest. Verse 21, From the entrance of the high priest's house to the end of it. Verse 23, you have these two phrases, In front of their house, beside his house. Verse 24, From Ezra's house to the anger and the corner. Verse 28, we read, Above the house gate, the priests make repairs. Where? Each in front of his house. Verse 29, Zadok, son of Emer, make repairs. Where? Opposite his house. Then verse 30, there's a phrase, opposite his living quarters. And then verse 31, last verse in, the Bible, in that chapter, as far as the house of the temple servants and merchants. As you can see, the people are assigned to work by location. They are also assigned to work by vocation. The high priests and the priests built the sheep gate because it is near the temple. It is through the sheep gate that the sacrificial sheep are brought into the temple for sacrifice. Hence the name sheep gate. Next, there is the work of the temple servants on the hills of Ophel in verse 26. That is the beginning of the hills of the temple. It is both a special and convenient place for the temple servants. Next, there is the supervision of the district rulers over the citizens. And Hima tells us there are as many as seven of them. Can you see what is happening? Answer, as the relationship between the rulers and the citizens are built up, so are the walls. Then there is the supervision of the head of household over the family. Again, can you see what is happening? The family that works together stays together. 
So whether it is by location or by vocation, everybody is working in the right place. What does this mean to you and me? The answer is easy and simple. God has placed you in this church to build His church for the glory of the kingdom of God. The right place for you is where God has called you here right now. The right place for you is a place where God has gifted you. The right place for you is where God has equipped and able and encouraged you for ministry and leadership. And therefore I say, successful church building requires everybody working in the right place. And I don't just mean the place you're sitting in right now. But the place that you occupy, not just on Sunday morning, whether my brother here, Brad, teaching the Sunday school, or Jonathan, who prayed for me twice, very uplifting prayer. He will take it with me. I will take it to my grave, indeed. Very exalting prayer. Coming from him. We are all in the right place where God has put us. That is where we can build the church successfully. Secret number three. Successful building requires everybody doing the right thing. Before we see how the builders do the right thing, it's important for me to point out what is not the right thing to do. In verse 5, Nehemiah says, The next section was repaired by the man of Tekoa. Then comes what we call in English grammar, conjunction of contrast. But, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Today English Version Bible translates it as, the leading men of the town refused to do the manual labor assigned them by the supervisors. What does it sound like? It sounds like a case of petty pride. The nobles are unwilling to roll out their sleeves, possibly because of their high status, stature, or station in life. Instead of becoming participants, they become spectators. When I read a verse like that, I wonder why Nehemiah includes the negative statement about the nobles. The leaders and members of all my former churches know that I always try to criticize privately. And if I have to praise, I'll do it publicly. For some reason, Nehemiah does not share upon my philosophy. Here, in Holy Read, tell everybody, those are the bad guys. How do you like that? Mm-hmm. Then it dawns upon me that Nehemiah is saying this, God marks the shirkers as well as the workers in His church. God takes notice of those who truly serve Him and those who don't. God knows who are those who are committed to Him and His work and those who are not. The nobles of Tekoa did not do the right thing, but thankfully the man of Tekoa did. In verse 5, Nehemiah already says, the next section was repaired by the man of Tekoa. But that is not all they did. In verse 27, Nehemiah adds, next to them, that is next to the temple servants, the man of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. In the Singapore Armed Forces, where I served gladly, proudly, for two and a half years in the military service, 
We call that on the ball. As if to make up for the failure of their nobles, they themselves take on double duty. They go the extra mile. They do extra work. That is doing the right thing. It's like, so what if they are not committed? So what if they are not responsible? So what if they are unfaithful? We don't have to be like that. We can take extra load up ourselves. Like I say in uh, Singapore Armed Forces, we call that man, being on the ball, man. And that can be very inspiring. But praise and thank God they are not alone in doing the right thing. In verse 13, Nehemiah tells us, The valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the resident of Genoa. They rebuilt it and put its doors and boats and bars in place. They also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the dung gate. This is in the NIV, New International Version. Now I flung my message in primary 3. I'm not very proud of that. But I know that 500 yards equal 450 meters. And 450 meters equal 1,500 feet. This is probably the longest stretch of the wall of Jerusalem without a gate. Archaeologist tells us the whole city of Jerusalem measures only 1,200 yards from north to south. But the work of Hanun and the residents of Zanoa covers 500 yards. Do you know what that means? It means a lot of difficult work. It means a lot of challenging work. It means a lot of demanding work. But what is happening here? Even though it is demanding and difficult, they did it. And that is doing the right thing. But there's more to come. Up till now, we've seen people in groups doing the right thing, but so are individuals working by themselves. In verse 14, Nehemiah says, The dung gate was repaired by Melchizedek, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Ben Hakaren. When I read this verse, I wonder what kind of a gate is that? The dung gate. It does not sound right, but I don't think it smells good. If the sheep gate smells bad, I dare say the dung gate smells worse. But here is Melchizedek, a district ruler, one of the seven VIP in the city of Jerusalem. A somebody in his own right, working alone, quietly and humbly. Evidently, when nobody wants to take up the work at the dung gate, he did it. You can imagine how the situation goes. Nehemiah assembles all the seven district rulers and then he says to them, Gentlemen, I had an important job to do, but I need a volunteer. Immediately one of them asks, Sir, where is it? Nehemiah answers straight away, It's at the dung gate. Instantly, all of them begin to bow their head and go deep into prayer. <laughs> All except Melchizedek, with his head up, looking straight at Nehemiah. I believe this is how Nehemiah picks him for the job. There's something else I want us to know. The dung gate is just one of the many gates. To others, it may be a minor concern, but to God, it is a major 
contribution. Now listen and please listen carefully. God does not allow the size of a work to determine or diminish the status of the worker. Just because the work is small, it doesn't mean and it does not make the worker small in the eyes of God. In God's eyes, no work done for Him in the name of Jesus Christ is small. Melchizedek does the right thing. But there's one more person I want us to meet. There's one name and just one word. It's very easy to miss because it's hidden in a mass of the many names and the many faces. It does not escape God's attention and therefore it mustn't escape ours too. I'm referring to verse 20. And there it says, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section. The name is Baruch. It means blessed or the blessed one. And the word is zealously. The authorized version translates it as earnestly. How did Baruch repair earnestly? How did he repair zealously? We do not know for sure. Maybe he works overtime regularly. Maybe he works harder, faster, and longer than everybody else. One thing is sure, whatever he does, he does it zealously. He does it earnestly. And so there's no surprise why his name appears again in the leading list of the priests in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 6. Baruch truly lives up to his name by doing the right thing. He becomes a blessing to others by serving God earnestly, by serving God zealously. By now, I'm ready to conclude my sermon. But let me say one more thing why Nehemiah and the builders do the right thing. If you read through the chapter, you will know that like doing the work of the church, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem means doing all kinds of work. There's rubbish to clear, foundations to lay, stones to cut, towers to erect, fortification to strengthen, doors to make, gates to fix, beams to secure, walls to build, so on and so forth. Yet throughout the whole chapter, only one single word dominates. The word repaired. According to a Revised Standard Version, besides the word built five times and rebuilt three times, the word repair occurs no less than 38 times when there are only 32 verses. It is found at least once in every verse. If you will take a highlight of whatever your color may be, be it yellow or blue, you just highlight the word repair in the entire chapter, it will jump at you. It's like this word will leap out of the pages and grab you by the neck. There is no way you can miss it. It's like, I would say, the chorus word of Nehemiah and the building. It's like every time they work on the walls, they will say, repair, repair, repair. Do you know what the word means? In Hebrew, it means to make firm. It means to make strong. Do you know what this means for each one of us here? It means we all can do the right thing for God by making the walls of Grace Christian Church firm. 
and strong. Successful church building requires everybody. It requires everybody working in the right place. It requires everybody doing the right thing. So I come to the conclusion of my sermon and I deliberately left it blank. Do you know why? Because now that you know the secrets of successful church building, the real and proper conclusion to today's sermon lies in your hands, not mine. Shall we pray? So God, we thank you. It is by your amazing grace you call us into relationship with you as our Heavenly Father, with Jesus as the head of the church and we as his builders. And we know, O oh Lord, it has never been by chance or coincidence you put us where we, right, where we are right here in this very church. And we ask, O oh God, now that we know the secrets of successful church building, fill us with your spirit and enable us to arise and build and make the walls of this church firm and strong like in the days of Nehemiah. And so we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pastor Thomas. Wow, there's um, so much in there. And uh, yeah, it was interesting how you mentioned that, that chapter. You could so easily just read over it and miss so much of that. And uh, yeah, it's amazing. So um, I'm just going to close us in prayer. And uh, yeah, that'll be it. Uh, Heavenly Father, we yeah, thank you so much for the richness of your word. And Father, we thank you for um, yeah, these truths that have been illuminated to us uh, this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that is challenging us and challenging my heart even now. And uh, Father, I pray that we would be able to respond to your call. Um, Father, we thank you that you will build your church, that you have equipped us with everything that we need uh, to build up these walls, uh, to build your kingdom. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to respond in kind. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be like uh, Baruch, that Father, we would build your church zealously, that we'd be passionate, that we'd be motivated. Not, uh, not because um, you know, we want to be famous or anything like that, uh, but because we want to see you glorified. Uh, Father, I pray that we be like Malkajar, um, I think it was, uh, that God will be prepared to do even the dirty work, the hard work, um, the toiling work. And uh, Father, give us, uh, yeah, give us that kind of servant heart uh, to build your church. Father, I pray for each of us now, for your, your hearers of your word, that God, that we would be doers that even this afternoon, in, in this moment, that there will be ways that you uh, show us how we can serve you and serve you wholeheartedly. Father, may we be a church that truly honors and glorifies you uh, in our attitude towards the work that you've uh, given us the great opportunity to, to do. And so, Father, we thank you so much for the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, church. We'll see you next week.